one of the things that, of course, has really poisoned so much of our society is disinformation and misinformation. And and just lying from the president and well, his well, I, acolytes. <laughs> I'm sure you saw a study about the impact of when his own personal channels were shut off, the impact it had overall. It took it down like 70% the misinformation in the world or something like that. <laughs> Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I continue to be interested in commercial technology that can provide an advantage in politics, especially if it is only available to Democrats. In this episode, I spoke with Daniel Kirshner, CEO and president of Greenfly. Greenfly is a tool for content collaboration and distribution, particularly video, that was used by both the DNC and Biden for president in the 2020 election. Greenfly was used by professional sports leagues like the NBA, Major League Baseball, European soccer leagues, and the like. I really enjoyed hearing Daniel's story because he has such a wide-ranging career in both law and technology. Under Obama, he worked at the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department and at the FCC, and then went to the video game company Activision Blizzard before starting Greenfly with his cousin Sean Green, the former Major League Baseball player. We talked about how Greenfly found its way into politics and what his plans are to expand in that space. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Daniel Kirshner and Greenfly. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Daniel, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, so my name is Daniel Kirshner. I am co-founder, president, and uh, CEO now of a company called Greenfly. I've had uh, several different careers. So grew up in San Francisco, went to college and, and law school at Harvard. In between, I worked in technology, which was during a very interesting time. It was uh, 99, so sort of the, the first bubble. Went to law school. After law school, I clerked. I worked for the Department of Justice at the beginning of the Obama administration. I uh, ran internet policy at the Federal Communications Commission uh, with Julius Janikowski. And then I got recruited to work for a video game company in California called Activision Blizzard. So I worked there for a while and uh, ultimately left there to start Greenfly, which is a uh, technology company for collaborating and exchanging content across uh, a network of people, largely focused on social media, but not exclusively I launched that. Uh, we started out really working very heavily in sports and media, but ultimately uh, came around to doing a lot of work in, in politics and with cause-based organizations again. So it kind of went full circle uh, for me, uh, uh, even though you know lots of different roles and, and kinds of jobs and activities uh, along the way. I love hearing careers like that, that are varied and interesting and at a high level in different areas. It's also good to hear about someone who's an English major or English and American literature major, which, which uh, isn't always the first choice to prepare for career in tech, for example. Tell me about that, why you picked that as a major and how that led forward. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And, and what, what I haven't had, I'm not sure if I've had before. First of all, I, I love literature and I love writing. And in particular, you know, I, I did a lot of creative writing, fiction writing, I also always loved technology. I, I grew up in San Francisco. You know, I taught myself to, to program, you know, back when it was basic and then Pascal. And I was never, you know, especially great at it, but it was always something I was really interested in, enjoyed. And I really was very interested in the technology industry. For my 
thesis at Harvard. I actually wrote a novel about technology consultants in a technology business. So there was always <laughs> a, a real interest and focus in technology that, that, that I always you know, came around to. I do think that reading and writing is, is preparation for almost anything. You know, certainly uh, figuring out how to communicate. I spent a lot of my time writing emails and messages and framing things and, and thinking about how to communicate and express them. So, I, you know, I certainly think some of the stuff I learned along the way has been helpful. But a lot of my sort of philosophy is to keep doing things that interest and, and excite you. And, you know, it will propel you down a path that that's a good fit. That's sort of my philosophy. So I've always, you know, not been afraid to take turns if, if they felt like the right ones. Did you publish that novel? I did not. I did not. It's it's funny. At the time, I thought I was, you know, I, I really thought maybe I'd be a writer. As I said, I did end up working for tech right out of college. Uh, and I thought, oh, I'll come back to it and, and maybe revise it and publish it. But it's not something I've done now. Now it would be a period piece, of course. At the time, it was <laughs> <Yeah>. very contemporary. <laughs> but if I dusted it off, it would be about a moment in time that's you know now uh, 20 years behind us. Tell me a little bit about that interim between Harvard and Harvard in the tech world. Where did you work and what did you learn doing that? Yeah, I, I learned a lot. I mean, I, you know, I came out, it was very interesting. It was a really exciting time. I graduated college in 99 and there was just a ton of activity and people doing interesting things. Uh, I ended up working initially in technology consulting uh, for a firm that actually built systems for universities. So course bidding systems, registrar systems, all the kind of, you know, boring kind of backend. I didn't find it boring. I found it very interesting, but the, the kind of backend infrastructure behind universities. And uh, that was a very interesting job. And then were you a programmer? What were you doing? No, I, I really was doing, you know, business development. I was doing, you know, pitches. I mean, I was putting together proposals. I did want to program and develop my programming. So they let me write some internal software, <laughs> but that's not what they hired me for. But, but, you know, I did some internal systems and stuff for fun and just to kind of teach myself more. So then actually I had an idea to start a company at that point in time. The idea was around doing uh, remote software updates uh, over the internet, which at that time really wasn't done. It was a good idea, but I don't know if it was a good business or it was something that that was really the right thing to try to do. But so I actually quit my job to start that with a partner. You know, he, he got cold feet. The market crashed and I ended up going to work for another technology company that really did telecom systems and uh, spent my time you know, reading the, the, the Telecommunications Act and thinking about it. It was uh, infrastructure for, for telecoms and software. And it was very interesting. And that ultimately you know, ended up being, being kind of useful for my ultimate role at the FCC. But I mean, at that time I was sort of, uh, okay, I got to kind of figure out what I want to do next in my life. My then girlfriend, now wife was actually in law school at the time. She'd gone straight from college into law school. And I was talking to her about what she was studying and doing and, and, you know, sat in on some classes with her and got really, really excited about that. And ultimately ended up, uh, you know, applying to law school and, and that's sort of how that happened. Harvard law is reputed to be a decent law school. What was your experience there like? I had a tremendous experience there. I have to say, I really loved law school. I ended up getting very involved. I, I ended up being um, the president of the Harvard Law Review. So that was a huge part of my experience at Harvard. That's one person a year, right? One person a year, yeah. Yeah, so it's pretty selective among a pretty selective group of people. <laughs> you must have been kind of acing law school at that point. So law school is a really good fit for me. In, in many ways, it's a better fit than college, at least academically. I really enjoyed the classes. It, I think it fit my skill set uh, very well. I just got really into really into law school. I ended up, there's a competition process for law review. I ended up joining the law review my, my second year there and just got really into it. I love the writing, the, the scholarship. I love the camaraderie. The way that the, the presidency is chosen at, at the Harvard Law Review is through uh, an election process. So I ran for that, and then you're, you're voted on by the, you know, by the by the entire law review body. And I, you know, for me, I, I do think my writing and editing, and you know, one of the things they do is they take all the work that you did, and they sort of put it in a big uh, folder that everybody goes through. So you know, I certainly think that that was, you know, obviously a big factor in my selection was just how much I enjoyed and got into, uh, and the you know the time and energy I put around the the work itself. And then you know, in terms of being the president running it, I mean, that's really, really where I learned how much I, I loved running an organization. I mean, at, at that point, you know, you do, they have something called the president's read where you actually give your comments on, you know, all the articles. So there is, you know, there's, there's some of that kind of substantive academic 
um, component to it. You're running that law review only a little over a decade after Obama, right? I think that's I think that's right. I mean, at that point, uh, Obama was not a household name, but we were very aware of him there. First black president of the yeah. Harvard Law Review. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's a pretty cool experience. And you went on like a lot of people do to clerk after that, right? I did. I I went on to clerk in the the Second Circuit in New York. I worked, you know, for some time after that, uh, doing appellate uh, litigation and a lot of uh, you know Supreme Court litigation. And then after Obama was elected, I, I went to go work for the Department of Justice in the Office of Legal Counsel. Was the judge that you clerked for? someone you looked up to? Absolutely. The person I clerked for is a judge named uh, Judge Laval, who is uh, you know, a Second Circuit judge. He was actually a trial judge, uh, you know, a district court judge before he was a Second Circuit judge, which I think was extremely helpful. He had a very, just a really interesting career as, as a trial judge. Uh, he oversaw some very prominent cases, and including this famous, enormous organized crime trial uh, called the Pizza Connection case, which was heavily covered in the media. It was one of the longest running federal cases in history. But he was just an incredible writer, an incredible thinker, very intellectual, very thoughtful, very you know reasonable, and really tried to figure out the best approach. And uh, he was a very influential judge and tremendous person to work for. I really, really enjoyed that experience a lot. Did you like working for the federal government? I did. I loved uh, so the Office of Legal Counsel, where I went after Obama was elected, is the part of the Department of Justice that basically uh, interprets the law on, on behalf of the the federal government. So really, uh, you know, writes opinions that can only be overruled by the Attorney General or the the President himself. Uh, so it's a very interesting. You see a lot. You work on a lot of the most challenging, interesting issues, resolving disputes between agencies providing feedback on legislation and also uh, writing opinions on, on novel legal issues. It was a really exciting time. It was the beginning of the Obama term. I, ju- I just finished his you know, promised land and it was great to, it was so interesting just to hear that, you know, from his perspective, uh, what, but obviously that was an incredible time of, of just trying to get a lot done and, and frankly getting a lot done. You know, that was the period, obviously the affordable care act uh, and all the drama around its ultimate passage. And I worked for, the person running the office at the time was a man named David Barron, who was appointed by Obama for the uh, First Circuit. He's now a judge on the First Circuit in Boston. But it was an incredible group of people. My colleagues were really thoughtful, really hardworking, and the leadership of the office was was fantastic. I had some interaction you know, with the Attorney General, Solicitor General. Everybody was uh, incredibly impressive and, and dedicated and really trying to do the right thing, you know, the kind of thing that if, if a lot of... Uh, Skeptical people out there or cynical people, you know, could see it. They'd be really uh, impressed by how dedicated people were to doing the right thing and, and trying to figure things out. Any of your colleagues there still there under Trump? Did you chat with them about what they had to go through? Most of the people turned over. There were, were people that were there under Trump. And I know other people in other parts of the Department of Justice. So I have had conversations. Obviously, it was a very difficult Time. I, I tried to avoid, you know, some of the people in, in those roles were in very sensitive roles under Trump. So, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to put them on the spot by talking to them. They also, I think, would, would, would be very discreet as well in terms of what they would say about the experience. But I have you know, heard from other people in other parts of the Department of Justice and the federal government uh, how difficult it was during that period and how different the leadership was. You know, to the extent that there was leadership uh, during that period. I have heard good things about Julius Janikowski from various angles. What was it like working there? That was great as well. That for me was a step back toward technology. I'd actually uh, been introduced to Julius and talked to him um, when he was still involved in the Obama campaign and we'd kept in touch and I really wanted to get back to technology. And so, you know, that's really why I made the decision as much as I loved uh, the office of legal counsel to go to the, the FCC you know, so much going on in such an interesting period. I, I was there during this kind of interim period around the the net neutrality rules, which had been issued by by regulation regulation and being you know challenged by Verizon in in court. You know, ultimately they were re issued in another form later. 
But it was very interesting just being in the middle of those disputes, having a lot of interaction, you know, as a regulatory body with the industry and really trying to, you know, get them to to do the right thing. And it was also just a really, a really interesting time. And, and I, I thought he was, again, a very thoughtful person who was navigating, uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, difficult, complex situations and, and really trying to do the right thing. And again, I had a great group of colleagues there as well. I was only there for about a year. The, I got recruited for this uh, Activision Blizzard job just through kind of a random series of events and ended up uh, jumping on that. But uh, but it was a great experience as, as well. It seems pretty unexpected to have your career land at a video game company. I remember Activision going way back, I believe, into the 80s. Yes, um, it was the uh, first uh, independent developer, I think, for Atari. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> a long history there. What was that like? Different world. Totally different. I mean, for, so for me, I, I'd had this plan to get back to technology and, you know, I'd gone to the FCC. I was really in, enjoying that. I wasn't planning to, to leave, but my, I'd grown up in, in San Francisco. I wanted to get back, you know, my, my sort of longer term plan in my head was to get back to California and get back to technology at some point. Actually, somebody I worked with at the FCC was a former colleague of the head of strategy at Activision Blizzard, and they'd been looking for somebody for this for a role there, a kind of unusual role where, you know, kind of the sort of right-hand person to the to the CEO with a lot of different interesting responsibilities. And so, I, you know, I figured it was worth, you know, sort of ha- having the conversation and, and seeing what that was. It wasn't sort of part of the plan, but it came to me in this kind of unusual way. And I figured, well, it's worth exploring and ended up having conversations and, and seeing that it was going to be a role where I'd have a lot of business exposure that, you know, I hadn't really had before. I never really worked for a sizable corporation before. I didn't really understand how they operated. Uh, so I realized that especially that role where I'd be so close to the CEO and the organization there, I'd have a lot of visibility. It'd be a, a really incredible learning experience for me and, and very interesting. So I figured, what the heck, I move across the country. <laughs> My family was up for it. They were kind of excited about it. And so we decided to do it. And, and uh, that's how I ended up in, in Santa Monica. Are you part of the founding story of Greenfly? Yeah, so Greenfly was originally started in its early exploratory form by my my cousin Sean Green. He's your cousin. Yes, I did not know that. Yeah. So we grew up together, first cousins. Moms are sisters. Uh, when I was growing up in San Francisco, he was in his family was in San Jose, and so our, our moms are from Chicago, and so you know we didn't have a, other family out in California, so we spent a lot of time with them growing up. And so when I came out to work for Activision Blizzard, he was in Southern California in Orange County. And so we just started spending a lot of time together again, just, you know, socially and, you know, reconnecting the families and everything. And he had started working on this. He played professional baseball for many years. Yeah. Best Jewish player since Greenberg. <laughs> I, I think that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, did you play any baseball growing up? I played some baseball. I played, uh, you know, little league sort of into middle school. I did, I used to go to his games, you know, when we were growing up sometimes. Um, he was always a phenomenal. Well, I just remember the day he had like four home runs and two other hits. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, like in a ridiculous game. Yeah, it's still the, I think it's the most total basis still for a hitter ever in a game, that game. So, uh, <laughs> Was it named Greenfly after his name then? There's actually a slang term in baseball uh, called Greenfly, which is like a term for a favor. Like, hey, can you greenfly me? Often it would be like, you know, can you greenfly me a bat for my kid's school auction or something like that? People would use it that way. It's obviously a pun on his name as well. You know, he came up with that name because he liked the idea of these interactions being being kind of little favors. You know, that was sort of the original way that he thought about it. So that's where the name comes from. And it worked quite well for the kind of platform we have because, of you know, fly, I think, suggests movement. And, uh, you know, fly on the wall and, and some of these kind of concepts where, you know, there's a there's a buzz and movement. So, you know, I think it, it ended up being a really great, a, a great name that, that fit well what we do. Yeah, makes sense. So what was the state of it when you joined? So the state was Sean had uh, started building this platform and he had built out a prototype. He had a friend who had been a you know, former technology person who helped him find you know, a, a dev shop to build out a really kind of rough prototype. And, and he was doing that, just really kind of experimenting with it, playing with it, thinking about it, and, and trying to talk to people about using it. 
So it was already in that form when I joined, you know, it wasn't really, you know, set up as a company. He hadn't raised any money for it or, or anything like no that. No customers yet? No customers yet. Uh, at the very beginning, he started having some conversations around doing some testing, uh, you know, with, with the Toronto Blue Jays, which is one of his, which is a team he actually came up in originally. Uh, so, you know, sort of shortly after I joined, there already were some kind of initial beta type tests in motion, but it hadn't, but nobody had used it yet. The way it was initially formulated, which was getting content from people. So a system where you could request content from people and they, they would create it on their phone and send it back. And it was a really uh, straightforward concept that that seemed really great, but that nobody else was doing. You know, we started just talking about it. We had one sort of long Thanksgiving where we just talking about it more and more. And I got more and more excited about it. And I'd always wanted to to build and, and run a company. And, and so, again, it just seemed like a really fortuitous opportunity that kind of fell into my lap. He'd already put a lot of great thinking into it and uh, we get along extremely well. So the prospect of working together was was really exciting. So I took another leap and left Activision Blizzard to, to build it. Yeah, that does sound exciting. Tell me just a little bit about the course of the company. So that's about seven years you're in, I think. Yes. Yeah. A tremendous amount can happen in a company. Trace the path of it starting when you arrive going forward. Yeah. So the original concept behind Greenfly, as I mentioned, was a kind of Q&A video platform. So requesting content from people and getting it back uh, through mobile devices. The original idea that that Sean had had was to build out a network of people that you know he thought of as experts and then enable media companies to send requests for content to those people and get it back. So, you know, if something happens in a sporting event, instead of just talking to whoever happens to be in the studio, you know, go to a doctor who's actually, you know, treated that injury or an athlete who's had it before and, and kind of get exactly the right content at the right, at the right time. And so that was how the platform was initially built. And the first kind of significant commercial thing we did was we worked with CBS and Turner for March Madness where we got a bunch of uh, celebrities and athletes to uh, create videos responding to what was going on in the game. So you know, Ashley Judd is a huge Kentucky fan. So she created videos around Kentucky and, you know, Christian Leitner had been a big star at Duke and he created videos for Duke. And, you know, we did this deal with CBS and, and Turner. And then we ran around basically saying to people, do you want to be on CBS and Turner? And they said, yes, we didn't have to pay them anything. They, they were excited to participate. And we sort of put this whole thing together. It was a lot of work to get the talent, and they use the content almost exclusively on broadcast as opposed to social, which seems bizarre in retrospect, but you know, they but they were happy with it. But what happened shortly thereafter is LeBron James and and, and Maverick Carter were working on starting a new media company uh, called Uninterrupted, and they were building out a network of athletes and they wanted to source videos from those athletes. And they were working with uh, Bleacher Report, which is part of Turner. And so they saw Greenfly and they said, hey, can we just license your software for, we already have a network of people. Can we license your software? And so, you know, we took a moment and we said, wait a minute. So you're going to pay us and you're going to put LeBron James on our platform. That sounds a lot better than us trying to figure out how to get LeBron James on our platform and turn around and sell access yeah, that sounds to him. Very good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was one of those moments where, you know, we kind of realized that, that that was a better business model. So we ended up doing and a you deal also with, had such yeah. a great first customer to, to come to the attention of LeBron right out right out of the gate, right? Yeah, there's a lot of good luck in the story. So yeah, and in fact, LeBron was one of the first power users of our platform. I remember, you know, there's they had something where they asked if they could do longer videos. We opened it up to five minutes, and he was doing a a tour of his shoe closet, and we were watching the packets go up in the back end, just like biting our nails, like terrified it was going to like fail, and the video was going to fail, and you know somebody would have to tell LeBron he has to redo it or I mean, it was not, you know, who you want to be your, your beta customer, your, your trial customer, but it ended up, uh, it ended up, you know, working out really well. And then, you know, we just started licensing it to lots of different properties and the platform got much more sophisticated. So instead of just gathering content from people, we realized once you're connected with those people, you can give them content to share. You can provide access to content. And that started out with like individual posts. And then we scaled it up to access to galleries that people could swipe through. So you can basically share you know, enormous libraries of content with people and then see if they're sharing it and track where it goes. And, you know, over time we started to power these larger and larger systems. So we work with, you know, Major League Baseball, the NBA, Bundesliga and UEFA in, in Europe. Uh, we work with, you know, large media companies. ESPN manages all their talent on our platform. 
you know, there's lots of different networks that you can light up. And of course, it turns out that if you're trying to power an advocacy network, you know, one of the most powerful use cases possible is is politics and cause organizations over the, the past year and, and through that election that ended up being a, a really significant part of what we were working on. That's really cool. How did you get pulled into politics originally? I was always passionate about politics. I'm, you know, definitely like a political junkie when it comes to, uh, you know, reading and following politics. I volunteered for the Clinton campaign when I was still in high school, you know, in, in 96, 92, actually, which gives you some sense of, of how passionate I always was. I thought about the application, but didn't really know how to approach it. And what happened was somebody from actually the NBA, which is a partner of ours, went to go work for one of the Democratic primary candidates. And so they used it over there. It was So it was Bloomberg, and they started using it with Bloomberg. Meanwhile, we'd had other applications. We were, were already working on a, a pro bono basis with March for Our Lives, uh, which is an organization that we were doing work with. And they were working with an agency that was also working with the Democratic National Convention Committee. And so through a various touch points, and then we ended up also connecting with Higher Ground Labs and, and those folks uh, over there. Through a bunch of different touch points, we ended up working with the convention, with the DNC, with the Biden campaign. And every time somebody moved from one organization to another, they would bring us with them. So uh, we just had a really great, I think just a really great fit for what they needed. And the use cases kept growing as well. We ended up working with a couple Senate campaigns as well. And, and so we ended up just doing a, a lot of work across Democratic Party politics. Most of the technology companies that Higher Ground has been involved in and, the, and others that I've talked to founders of on this show are Democrat only. Where are you on that partisanship question? We've only been working with Democratic Party politicians and you know, committees and things like that. We're somewhat different than those other tools in the sense that we're a technology platform. We're not an agency at the same time you know, uh, based on, on, on our politics and, uh, and what we've built in our experience, you know, that's something that we're really, we're really committed to working with Democratic Party politics and, and also progressive causes more generally. Our CTO got his start in Democratic Party politics and working for progressive organizations actually before he, he circled back and really, you know, went into technology. So this is something that's very deep. Who's your CTO? His name is uh, Marshall Greer. In a past life, he worked for um, various organizations, including NARAL, and is himself very committed to uh, progressive politics and causes as well. So it's something that's very deep in the our DNA and uh, in our outlook. How big of a company have you become? We're approaching 40 people. What's the competitive landscape look like for you? We, we really created a space here when it comes to content exchange and collection at scale Generally, what we're competing with are an assortment of off-the-shelf tools that are not really designed, you know, for the real problems that we accomplish. So, you know, people are exchanging content and communicating, you know, using everything from like WhatsApp, you know, obviously uh, uh, file sharing platforms like Dropbox and Box and Google Drive. They're using Slack to communicate and exchange files. Is we're going into a, a very complicated landscape with all these different tools floating around and, and content sitting in different places and things can be you know, very disorganized and painful and not scalable. And, you know, we can clean that up and streamline that very, very quickly. And we can plug into those existing platforms in various ways. You know, if you have a bunch of your content sitting in a Google Drive, like you can connect that Google Drive to Greenfly and ingest that content. And, you know, if you have content sitting in, in a, a digital asset management system, management system that's tagged and organized in different ways, we can bring that content in. We can use those, that organization to route that content to the right you know, distribution points. So we can really clean up uh, a lot of the existing infrastructure. But generally, that's what we are um, competing against. The problem, of course, if you think about something like the kind of stuff like the Biden campaign or the DNC we're, we're doing, I mean, you, you know, you're managing surrogates, high profile surrogates, uh, you know, getting content to, to other politicians. But you also want to get content to thousands of other people who, you know, have smaller followings or much more local. And you want to be able to really do that and organize it at scale. You want to know where that content's going. Uh, you want to feed different people access to different content. Those are things that are very hard to do with those off the shelf platforms. Yeah, I've seen people, you know, consulting around YouTube or TikTok or other video sharing 
mm-hmm. but you lose control of it that way, right? You do. I mean, you know, so for example, it'd be very hard to do what we do at the kind of scale that we have. But if you look at like the Biden campaign or the, or the DNC, you know, think about, uh, again, you are managing thousands of people that you want to be able to, you know, could be, you could start with, you know, smaller groups as well. It could be dozens or hundreds or, or thousands of people, but you want to be able to efficiently get content to those people. You want to get different content to different people. Sometimes you want to propose posts. You want to have, you know, you've got a great moment from the debate that you want everybody sharing, you know, sort of at once across all the different platforms with, you know, a certain hashtag or something like that. Sometimes you just want to give access to lots of different content that people can choose from to deploy, to help, you know, express what they want to express. And that could be on a major social platform like Instagram, but it could also be in a Facebook group or a WhatsApp chat with, you know, a bunch of people from their community that they're trying to, that they're trying to persuade or trying to give information on how to get to the polls or, or whatever it is. It's very hard to organize and conduct that kind of content sharing across a large number of people without Greenfly. And it's impossible to have any idea of where that content's going. So maybe you can create a bunch of Dropbox folders and give people access to it, but you don't know what people are doing with that content, where it's going, are they posting it to social, what's happening to it. You, you basically have no control. And the user experience when it comes to navigating those folders is much more friction-filled and painful than navigating content through our, our app. So among your political clients, who used it well? And, and what did they do that made it a good use of it? The convention, which is really, you know, where we got going very, very quickly early on. And that's because, you know, they realized the convention had to be virtual. And so a huge challenge there was, you know, how are we going to support the delegates and the participants in the convention when we're not in the same room as them? So it's everything from, okay, you know, Bernie Sanders is going to be speaking tonight. We want him to share on Twitter the time of his speech and a nice graphic to we've got all these delegates, you know, watching in their homes it would be great to be able to get, you know, photos and videos from them showing what their watch situation is like so that we can really share and celebrate those. So everything from sort of the high profile participants to the delegates, you know, that was a, a really strong need. And of course, there, you know, people were not all gathered in one place. There's nothing you could do in person. And so having a platform to be able to do that was really important. What was interesting is that the use cases kept growing. So, you know, the DNC was very focused on getting out, you know, voting information and getting content out to battleground states. President Obama created a, a series of videos with you know, various you know, voter information. And so they used Greenfly to disseminate those videos to different people in different places that were in a position to share those with their communities to really get those out. So that was, a, you know, I thought, a really incredible use case. It kept accelerating the, the, the usage, I mean, and broadening to the point where Toward the end of the Biden campaign, Biden himself tweeted out instructions on downloading Greenfly to open it up to you know, a broader group of people out there so that they could access great content that they could share. And so some of those really beautiful drawings and visuals they did toward the end of the campaign, you know, they were putting that stuff into galleries on Greenfly and thousands of people were sharing them on all their different channels. And you know, I think the way that, that social media has evolved, it's much more powerful to see a piece of content like that from a relative or somebody in your community or somebody that you know or are close to than to see it you know, just on a campaign channel. You're able to reach uh, different pockets that you may not be able to reach on, on those direct channels. When you talk about the clients that you have, which are you know, sports leagues and presidential campaigns, and you said a couple senators, it always makes me think this must be a complicated application because it has to deal with the complexity of the hardest type of clients. Is it something that can translate to smaller organizations, smaller campaigns, or is it really something that works at that scale? So it definitely can translate to smaller campaigns and smaller organizations. If you're managing 10 or 25 people, I mean, one of the Senate campaigns we worked with used it just for staff. And it was really, you know, exchanging content with staff. And actually, as I mentioned, we started with the Bloomberg campaign. And that's really how they were using it, uh, not going out to these much, much broader groups. Even getting content to and from the people that you're working with can be very challenging, uh, especially in, you know, these kinds of high stress, high speed environments. If you have people on the ground at an event, they're in a position with their phones to capture all sorts of content. 
And with Greenfly, they can load that content into a central location that whoever is you know, owning the social channels can immediately access in real time and publish. And you can really organize um, you know, the sharing of content across an organization, even if it's a relatively small group of people. And one of the things that I think we've really focused upon is simplicity and ease of use. You're right that we can power a lot of complex things with complex organizations. For example, when it comes to integrations and ingesting content and routing content, you know, that's not something that might be important for small organizations, but it's very important for large organizations. But at the end of the day, the people on the platform, the people in the app, it needs to be really, really easy to use. And it needs to be clear. These are people that you don't have an opportunity to train or onboard in any sense. They just need to be able to download the app like they would any consumer app and be able to start using it. And I think in that regard, the fact that we started, you know, with professional athletes who have a lot of demands on them, you know, they might not have a lot of patience or time to troubleshoot something. You're just not going to have that kind of interaction. It's got to work, you know, right off the bat. And it's got to be clear and it's got to be straightforward and it's got to make their life easier. That's really how we approached the app in the beginning. And I think ultimately that paid off, not just for celebrities that a campaign might be working with or or other politicians, but for staff and for you know a, a broader segment of the public that they're trying to activate they don't have a chance to really sit down with those people they've got to be able to you know send them a link to the app and and have them start using it right away the other barrier for smaller campaigns on tech is is pricing how do you charge so we charge based on the number of users and not on the level of activity to be parted from this in the political context uh, for, for obvious reasons, we, you know, we generally have annual ongoing, you know, it's like a, a software as a service platform. We have general ongoing annual licenses, uh, you know, with political campaigns, we, you know, we were flexible in terms of, you know, reducing that time frame because, you know, they're really focused on, on the campaign and the election. And also, you know, when it comes to smaller campaigns and smaller organizations, generally, we always uh, work together to come up with a pricing structure that works it's not a one size fits all approach. You know, we can take into account the fact that an or- a small organization might not have the same kinds of resources, might be operating on a much smaller scale. You know, our price naturally scales down, you know, if they're operating on a smaller scale, but also we've been flexible in situations when people can really, really use the platform. But we understand that uh, a small campaign, you know, a local mayor race does not look like the NBA when it comes to you know, the size, the capacity to pay or approach. And, and we, we can be flexible and work in those kinds of environments as well. And we try to make it so that, you know, that, that kind of capacity to pay is, is not a barrier to somebody who is really able to use the platform. When you get to 40 employees and premier clients like you have, the opportunities change for a company in terms of raising money in terms of exits, in terms of different opportunities to go forward. What are you guys thinking about the future? What are you aiming at? Right now, we're really just focused on building the best platform. And one of the things that we've learned over the past few years is that the applications for this platform are are almost endless. You know, we talked about sports. We also work a lot in media, which is a growing category for us. We've started working with a number of consumer brands as well. You know, we even picked up an insurance company, which is using it to communicate with their insurance agents. So we start to see all these different applications. And so I feel like there's just a lot of, of value to unlock here and a lot of building before, you know, we're going to be ready for an exit, you know, which isn't to say that something couldn't come along now that's really appealing. But I, I feel like there's a lot of building between here and there that, that I really want to focus on and, and that I think it's important to accomplish before we start to think about, you know, what might be the best approach. Obviously, you know, the success has been helpful in raising money. And we've raised, you know, we've raised money along the way. There's a lot of, of work to do a- ahead. I will say that for me personally, the political stuff has been the most rewarding and, you know, personally exciting. And so putting aside the sort of business opportunity, which, you know, is, is significant, uh, we're really intent on supporting that space because I think we can have a very dramatic impact on campaigns and on cause-based organizations and on things that we really care about and that I care about personally. Not being in DC during during these these past four years, you know, probably has been good for my, you know, mental health. But uh, you know, at the same time, like you know, not being able to do something significant around the election, it was just very important and rewarding to be able to do something significant around the election and to feel like we could make an impact. 
higher ground labs invested in you? Yes. Have they been helpful beyond that investment? Yes. Uh, I think it's an incredible organization. Uh, I feel very fortunate. Uh, you know, they were helpful even along the way before they invested or when we started to talk about it um, in terms of introductions and conversations and things that really accelerated some of the stuff that we ended up doing around the campaigns in terms of introducing us to folks and, and things like that. But I think they've built a, a really a really great community of uh, organizations, you know, with the like-minded purpose. They did a great debrief uh, after the campaign. You know, where they included a lot of people from the various campaigns talking about their experiences. And I think they really created a, a sense of community and uh, cross-pollination and learning. And so it's a pretty new relationship for us, but I, I just, I feel like it's already had a, a really, a really tremendous impact. They're very thoughtful in terms of how they really add value to their companies and promote the overall cause around, uh, you know, really propelling progressive campaigns and, and organizations to success. Betsy tells me that they have an open call for other entrepreneurs that are interested in working with them that I think closes in the beginning of March. So to people who are listening, I've heard this kind of experience that Daniel is noting with them from lots of other firms. So maybe you should give it a shot. Daniel, is there a question that I didn't ask you that you'd like to answer about Greenfly? We were obviously in a very complicated and challenging environment when it comes to social media these days, to say the least. One of the things that, of course, has really poisoned so much of our society is disinformation and misinformation. And and just lying from the president and well, his lie, acolytes. <laughs> lying from the president's acolytes. And I'm sure you saw that study about, about the impact of when you know his own personal uh, channels were shut off. The impact it had overall took it down like seventy percent. The misinformation in the world, or something like that. <laughs> they shut down a bunch of other, you know, people as well at the same time, which you know, obviously also had an impact. But I think it does show, first of all, that you know that social media companies can do things about this. It's not as hard and complicated as you know they may uh, present at times. But um, what I was going to say is, I, I really think that it's important to have collaborative spaces and communities that exist outside of these platforms. And also that enable you to kind of marshal information with these platforms. One of the things that I think Greenfly, one of the ways I think we had an impact on this past election, but I, I think we can do you know a lot more of in the past, is creating these communicative spaces to get information out into the world that can counteract some of these false narratives and make sure that it reaches corners that are hard to reach. Because so many of these conversations right now and misinformation, disinformation is going on in groups, in chats, in all these different threads. And so it's very important to be able to empower a real segment of the population of your supporters and really give them access to compelling and accurate information that they can share to counteract some of that. Everything from you know really basic logistical information around voting to combat some of the misinformation campaigns you know, and, and voter suppression efforts to deeper information about, about policies, to making sure that, uh, you know, that the successes, for example, of the Biden administration are really communicated to the American people and progressive policy initiatives are accurately communicated to the American people. So I think there's a really role, a big role that we can play in that. And I think there's a way that that really speaks to this, this challenging moment. Well, I mean, you are a platform. What would you do if someone was using you for misinformation? We would take action. I mean, obviously, it would depend upon the circumstances, but we do have provisions in our in our contracts that enable us to to take action if people are using this in in a harmful way. It's interesting, you know, we're not an open platform the same way, right? We're we're going out there and we're we're selling it to people who are using it and managing it. And so, you know, because we're selling to the organizations we're we're, we're selling to, we're not having those issues. It's not like you're not selling it to the Proud Boys, exactly, exactly. <laughs> we're not we're not we're not selling it to the Proud Boys. So, I mean, that makes it less of a of an issue for us, but that isn't to say it's not, if somebody did start to do something on the platform that was problematic, we, we would be in a position to, to take action about it. But I do think it's important, as I said, that organizations that are using our platform, like they have a collaborative space, they have a connection and a way to communicate and share content with people that isn't dependent upon a particular social media platform. Do you have an opinion about Section 230? What's it, the Communications Decency Act? Yeah. It's part of your world on, in multiple jobs or close to it, right? Yes, yes. I want to be careful in this kind of format. I want to be more thoughtful about that. I mean, I, it's something I do think a lot about. You know, so I have some thoughts. Obviously, the way that 230 is being depicted 
you know, by the Republicans and conservatives, it's completely disconnected from what 230 is. And I don't even think, you know, eliminating 230, I think, if anything, would spur, you know, more restriction on information shared on platforms because they're more concerned about liability. So the notion that somehow, you know, you'd you'd stop this supposed censorship of, I mean, that, that whole thing is completely misguided. Does it make any sense that a platform like a Facebook or Twitter should be responsible for content when they have infinity users and it's super hard to track? It's obviously a difficult policy question, but, and so I think you have to take into account what is possible and and achievable. I, I think the answer is yes. I mean, there are things that those platforms can do. We've seen that, you know, they bear responsibility. I, I think it's different than, I mean, I think just opening up and treating them like they're like they're basically editing and and writing each post on the platform, you know, doesn't make sense from a legal liability perspective. But at the same time, there's definitely a balance that can be struck that encourages preventing some of the really, really damaging stuff that's going on. I mean, it's great to see Facebook, you know, for example, take action against some of the vaccine disinformation, you know, that's been coming out recently, for example. But they even shut down Robert Kennedy, right? Yeah. They did. But, you know, but at the same time, like, you know, okay, it's great that they made that decision, but uh, what if they hadn't? And there's probably 12 other people they need to. (laughs) It's so, it's so hard. It it, it is really hard. You know, it makes sense in some ways to put more responsibility on the bigger companies Uh, with the more users. They can say, oh, it's harder to, you know, regulate more users. At the same time, they have the resources, you know, to address these issues. And, you know, the, the point of 230 was to allow for companies to do things, you know, to really build these platforms without, being completely debilitated by lawsuits. And I think that's an, that's an admirable objective. I, I do think we have to find the right balance and certainly to say, oh, we, we bear no responsibility for how our platform is used is problematic. And when it comes to certain kinds of really offensive and illegal material, the platforms have always done a good job of regulating that and preventing that. It's a balance and there needs to be some adjustment, but I, I do think we're seeing an emerging sense of responsibility by these platforms, but at the same time, you know, I, I definitely think there's 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 a policy role to be played there as well. You've expressed enthusiasm for pretty much all of the steps in your career, at least how I heard it. Uh, <laughs> this seems like a good fit for you, though. Why? I think I'm somebody who, you know, if so, if something is is not a good experience, then it's a learning experience, right? That's that's my general approach. That, that can't be said about everything in, in your life, but I certainly feel that way about about the kind of career path. I, I think why this is a good fit. I, I love, I love building something. I love, you know, building a team and a, and a culture. And I love that, that kind of shared sense of, of purpose. The the one thing that was kind of missing was, was a sense of social impact. And so it's been really exciting to see that even emerge in this, in this role, because that's always been something that's been important to me personally. And, you know, I, I felt like I'd kind of gone away from that. And now I, I do feel like, you know, there's a role our platform can be played in, in, in that way as well. So that's something that's been really, uh, really rewarding. Thinking about all these issues and, and not being able to say, oh, it's, it's somebody else's responsibility or I did what I, I could. Like, you know, when you're when you're running a company at the end of the day, if it's good or it's bad, it's it's on you. And I, I really like that sense of being able to to have an impact and and kind of own the decisions and be a leader. I mean, you mentioned that law review thing. That's one thing I really took away from it which is how much I loved running an organization and just the, the mechanics of that. So it's, it's really something I enjoy a lot. Have you built up sort of a set of principles about what makes a good manager, a good leader, a good entrepreneur from this experience? One thing that I think is very important, uh, you know, certainly in technology is, you know, it's, it's kind of the old trope, like the customer is always right, but really listening to your customers it's your responsibility to make sure that you're delivering something that can be used in the ways intended that creates the opportunities intended. And I really think it's almost like a collaboration. When you think about the product, it's a constant series of refinements based on, on feedback and listening and understanding what people are trying to accomplish, not just their actual experience of the platform, but their larger aspirations in their roles and really understanding and listening to that and really having that kind of dialogue and appreciating that when they say something you don't want to hear, it's probably because you need to hear it. That's a big part of it. You know, certainly when it comes to the internal dynamics of the team, you know, I think really uh, encouraging uh, a very collaborative environment, not creating you know sort of false competitions and internal political challenges, but really, really being very open and transparent with people, and encouraging everybody to really support each other and view you know the project as really a shared enterprise.
where overall success is, is something that we all you know, should be proud of and, and all own. My strong feeling about a product company is they go awry when they forget that the product is is all really that the relationship that the consumers or the clients have with what they're building is very personal and that if you lose sight of making that excellent then you've lost your way you can become you know sales driven or you can start worrying about mergers and bigger things but the product is what got you there and what creates your relationships with the world. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, people with our platform too, I mean, the users, they're opening this thing every day. They're using it every day. I mean, they're having a very you know personal experience with it. And, and I, I, I totally agree. And that extends to the service of the product, right? When, when something goes wrong, how you take care of the client around it. Absolutely. In fact, that's our, you know, our two biggest groups in the company are our product, you know, development and our customer success. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and absolutely like that personal interaction and support is every bit as important. And it's also how you learn from the customers is, is having those kinds of interaction and a level of trust, you know, between the customer success team and the user. The execution is as important as the idea. You know, I think it's something that people sometimes lose sight of in, in technology. They think, oh, who are this idea first or whatever. I mean, obviously, you know, when Zoom came along, there were a, mi- a million, you know, video conference platforms, but they executed extremely well and they really, you know, built an incredible, uh, incredible, uh, you know, following as a, as a result. So I think it's not just the idea that you have, but it's how will you execute it that really is going to determine your success. It does extend to getting it out there and all kinds of pieces of it. But at the end of the day, a good product tends to sell itself. And just like you found when LeBron saw it for the first time, it became attractive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Daniel, it's been an honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? I really appreciate the conversation. It's been it's been a real joy. And uh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. That was Daniel Kirshner. Daniel is at greenfly.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.